0: Alright, let's get going. This time of year is always kind of crazy with all the stuff that's going on when you get into uh, the Christmas season and whatnot. There's a million Christmas parties or things going on into the year stuff that you got to get to. And so last week we took a week off kind of talking about uh, some of the Christmas traditions that we have and where they come from and why we, we do them and realizing that a lot of the tradition that we have isn't necessarily biblical. Nothing wrong with it, they're good stories, there's nothing like heretical or anything like that, but, but the ideas and concepts that come from that aren't necessarily biblical. And the thing that we've been try, I've been trying to show you guys when it comes to the idea of finances is there's a lot of things that we do in this country and including in the church that aren't necessarily biblical. And so what happens is in, in the United States today, if I show somebody this book and I say, what is this? They say, well, that's the Bible. I'm like, well, what, what is the Bible? They would say something to the effect, well, it's God's word. Okay, that's great. What does that mean? And they say, well, you know, there's some rules in there that we abide by and, and some things like that. And then I'd ask, okay, well, do you believe it? And they say, oh, sure, I like, I like that part, but I don't like this part. And, you know, and you get people in there, and I, I'll go to a church when I'm speaking at a different church or whatnot, and I do this oftentimes, I said, how many of you guys that believe this is the inspired written word of God? And the hands go up. Like, how many of you guys believe that every word in it is true? Hands stay up. Like, how many of you guys have read every word that's in it? Many hands go down. Why? Because we don't study it, right? We read it. We look at it. We'll go through. This is how it gets used in America today. And this is sad. This is never how God intended this to be. But we're like, I'm feeling a little gloomy today. It's not been a good day. I need something inspirational. So we'll flip open. Oh, how about Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, I need some of that today. Even though that has nothing to do with anything. That, that, that gets put on t-shirts, right? Athletes use it all the time. They'll, you'll see them on the, the football players. that put Philippians 4.13 under their eyes. I've seen a golfer put it on their bag. And I can promise you this. I may not know everything about the Bible, but God's intent to that verse wasn't to make you hit the golf ball further. Because if it was, it would be tattooed all over me. I can assure you. Or straighter would be good too. You see, what we've done is we've turned the Bible into nothing more than kind of a Hallmark card or an inspirational quote, and there are those in there, and we should be inspired by it. We should be inspired by Philippians 14, 4.13, but we should look to understand what God's intent was when he wrote it. See, the Bible is not a book. It's a collection of books, 66 books, over 40 authors, over a 1,500-year span, written by different people in different times, but it has one theme. It is the bringing of the Messiah into the world, which is what we just got done celebrating. I mean, that's what Christmas was all about. It's the celebrating of the birth of the Jewish Messiah who came for all people because the Jews rejected him. You see, there were covenants involved, and there's a whole lot of stuff that I don't want to get into the weeds about today because that's not the focus. But the bottom line is, is until we understand the scriptures of what God intended for different things, we can just make up anything that we want, whether it has any foundation or not. We can believe what we want. We say, oh, yeah, I believe that. I had a young lady tell me one time. I said, well, what parts of the Bible do you believe? She's like, well, I believe about 95% of it. I said, well, what's the other 5%? She's like, well, I just, I don't like what those say. I'm like, okay, but does that make it not true? Just because you don't like it, have you ever punished one of your children? Do they like it? No. They do not like it. Do you care? No. You do not care, right? And if they don't like it too much, you'll punish them for not liking it. Right? I mean, it's like, we can double down on this. You'll never leave your room. You are going to graduate high school on that bed. That's what's going to happen. We homeschool so we can say that stuff. You know? So it's, it's one of those things that it's like, why do we have this misnomer of what the Scripture is? Well, it, it goes for every subject. And finances is no different than that. We need to understand what God intended for us to do with our money, and we've been going through this. So let's recap just for a minute, because we're going to be transitioning here a little bit uh, over the next few weeks with this, is we've looked at what God's intent was. First of all, number one, who the tithe, what is it? Tithe is 10, it's a 10%, right? Some people say, well, the tithe was only in the, New, or in the Old Testament. That's not true. It was part of the Mosaic Law. Jesus talks about it, it mentions in Hebrews how they receive the tithes here on earth, but they're doing it in place of Jesus, it's like he's receiving it. It's 10%, it's the first fruits of what we get. And so we bring that. It predated the Mosaic law. Abraham did it, Joshua did it. It has nothing to do with any kind of Old Testament covenant. It was something that God intended to do. Why? Because of who it belonged to. It belonged to him. The first 10% always belonged to God. You bring it To the storehouse, that's what Malachi says, and see if I I don't open the windows of heaven and pour it on a blessing on you that you don't have room to receive it. You see, we bring that to Him. So it's not ours. It doesn't belong to us, right? The rest belongs to us to do with what we want. We'll get into that a little bit more today. But we can give it, we can keep it, we can give it to the church, we can give it to somebody else in need, we can send it to some other ministry, we can do whatever we want with it. It's ours. We don't have to give any of it. But the tithe belonged to God. That's what the Bible says. From there, we begin to look at, well, why people don't. And then the verse of Jesus says, You can't serve God and Mammon. We begin to look at what Mammon was. Mammon was not just money, it's more than that. It's the Assyrian God of riches and wealth and finances. And I don't have the pictures up there today, but I showed you some images of of what we think that they, they believe he looked like and whatnot. But basically, Mammon would make promises. He would promise, listen, if you will worship me, I will give you all the kings of the world. I will make you wealthy. I will make you respected. I will lift you up and elevate you. What does that feed into? Pride. That's the same thing that Jesus was tempted with in Matthew chapter 4. When the devil came to tempt him after he had fasted for 40 days, it was all the same thing. Hey, you're hungry. Why don't you turn those stones to bread? Hey, I'll put you up on the temple. Why don't you just jump off and have the angels catch you? They'll they'll protect you. they use scripture to do it. And then he takes them up and he shows them all the kingdoms of the world and said, listen, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all of this. And Jesus said, no. He didn't fall into the temptation. You see, that is mammon. If you will serve me, I'll give you all of these things. Let's talk about the American dream. What does that sound like? I've got to get this. I need to get a social status. I need, I need to drive a new car so I can keep up with the Joneses. You know, we portray this image of wealth it isn't necessarily accurate because we're chasing all of these things. Why, are we supposed to chase things? Or are we supposed to chase God? See, these things are nothing more than a tool. There's nothing wrong with having them. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car, a nice house, multiple of them. I don't care. But do they have you? Which is the principle of God? You see, that's mammon. We see mammon play his ugly head in the Book of Revelation with the mark of the beast. Right? What does he do? You can neither buy nor sell unless you take the image or the mark of the beast. You've got to worship him. You're creating allegiances. So how many people, if they did not have the ability to go and work for a living, selling stuff, whatever, or to go and buy the goods that they need, would just take this mark and say, Well, it's okay. God would understand because I have to take care of my family. Is that biblical? No, it's not because who takes care of our families? God does. You see, that's the part we've been missing is that our faith and hope and trust is always in God to provide for us. Always. Nothing changes. It is not your job. It is not your farm. It is not your business. It is not your investments. All of those may be mechanisms which God used to bring increase into your life, but we don't put our hope in those things. We put our hope in God. And how do we prove that hope? When we give, when we bring that first fruit. The principle in the first fruit and the tithe was when they, that lamb, the sheep would have a, a newborn lamb that, that belonged to God. You bring it to him, it was sacrificed. Why is that putting your faith in God? You never know if that sheep's going to have another baby. You bring the first of the crop that you, that you harvest, you bring it to God. They brought it to the temple. Why do you do it immediately? What if something happens and you're unable? What if a hailstorm comes through and wipes out the rest of that before you're done? You see, we're putting our faith in God that He is the one that meets our needs, is according to His riches and glory through His Son, Christ Jesus. That's New Testament. So that's the stuff that we often overlook and we miss. We miss the point of it because what is God after? He's not after your money, He's after your heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what do we treasure? Well, it's usually pretty easy to figure out. All we've got to do is look at a person's checkbook. What is your priority? what are we spending all of our time and energy and resources on it's typically things that make us happy we're seeking happiness Is god a god of just making you happy no he wants you happy but not at the expense of your relationship with him so to prove this another way to, as we're going forward we need to start looking about what do we do with our finances like how do we give and and what not and we're going to start to look in that. But before we go into that part, we're going to look at something today that I can assure you that you've never thought about has anything to do with finances. We're going to talk about the Sabbath. Okay? I know. It's weird. I see some of you staring at me. Just trust me. Just go with me. Just, just bear this out a little bit. What is the Sabbath? I can tell you that today is not it. The Sabbath is not Sunday. It never has been, it never will be. Let's jump to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. We're going to start there today. This is part of the Ten Commandments, all right? This is God laying them out for the nation of Israel. It says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you should do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. Okay, now, let's break this down a little bit today. The Sabbath, what is the Sabbath? It is the seventh day of the week, which is what? Saturday. It was because how the Jews kept their days, they went from evening to morning. Evening to morning, we do it differently. They ran off a lunar calendar, we run off of a solar calendar. So let's look at this and how much this actually plays a part in the world that we live in today. Okay? Where do we get a day from? It's from the rotation of the earth, right? Right? 24 hours takes the road. That's how we get it. Sun goes up, sun goes down. We go back and forth repeat. Okay? Where do we get a month? It's the moon traveling around the earth, right? Lunar calendar, all that kind of stuff. Alright? Where do we get a year? The earth around the sun. These are all scientific principles. That's what we base them off of. But where do we get a week? We just read it. You ever wonder that? Why do we have a week? Why don't we just have a month? This is the principle that came out from the very beginning. You see that in the story in Genesis with the creation. God created in six days and that is the argument he's making. I created in six days and then I rested. I want you to follow that paradigm. Follow what I'm doing. And so they did. And so they did no work. Now, when no work means no work. And Jews have taken this to such an extreme, it's it's absolutely crazy. In fact, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees because, remember, he healed on the Sabbath. So here's a guy who can't walk, and he healed him. Or he's blind. Which one was it? I think he's blind. I don't know. He healed some dude on the Sabbath. Somebody look that up. He heals this guy on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are freaking out because why? Healing somebody is work, and you can't do work. So I'm so, so imagine this in today's world. Let's say that we could do no work on the Sabbath, and somebody gets hit by a bus. And you know that you have this gift of healing, and all you'd have to do is walk over there, and lay hands on them, and they would get back up. If you don't, they're going to die. According to the Pharisees, you let them die. That's how extreme it is. It's crazy. Okay? Jesus said, no, that is not what was just talking about. Now, those laws came into play later uh, after the uh, new temple was built. It's a whole other thing. I, I don't want to go there today. But the bottom line is this, they say do no work. So what is work? Well, to Jews today, if you go over to Israel on the Sabbath, Friday night to Saturday night, they have elevators. And the elevators stop on every floor because pushing the button is work. Okay, so if they see what they call a Goim, which is a Gentile, which is all of us because we're not Jewish, going into the elevator, they will follow you on there and say, "Would you push floor nine for me?" Because otherwise, they got to stop on every floor. This is how crazy it is. Obviously, this is not what God intended. So, what is the Sabbath? Well, to keep the Sabbath, it is more than just the sixth day because there's a bunch of them. But there's a whole number of laws that were introduced by God to the Jews to Israel. Okay, first was the food laws. Okay. You said no pork, no shellfish, nothing that uh, chews the cud, things like that. There was a whole bunch of stuff that they had to go into. We're not going to get into that. So you had the food laws. Then what else did they have to do? They had clothing laws, right? No mixed fabrics at all. So if you have a cotton slash rayon shirt, you would be breaking the law. It had to be of one fabric. That's it. But the last one, and this is what it has to do with the Sabbath, was the farming, the crops, because every seventh year, they would have to allow the land to rest. So you had the Sabbath, which was seven days, the seventh day. You had the what they would call the Shemitah year, the seventh year, the land Sabbath. You would also have this Jubilee year, which is every 50th year, I know, or 49th year technically, which would get you into... Uh, where all, all debts were forgiven, everything like that would go. Same with the Shemitah. And then he would also have these feasts that happened that had, they were special Sabbath days where they would rest in, in their seven feasts and whatnot. Now, I know this is confusing, just bear with me here. The seventh day is the Sabbath, but there was a Sabbath rest here, and there was a Sabbath rest here, and there was a Sabbath rest here. Uh, can you see that this, there's a lot of Sabbaths that are going on? You know, when we get into Easter this year, we're going to talk about how the Sabbath played a part in the resurrection of Jesus. Because I'll tell you this, Jesus did not die on Friday and raise on Sunday. I'll just say that. We'll get into the details when we get there. So we have all of these right here. Food, clothing, crops. You couldn't keep one and not the others. Because if you missed one, you missed them all. And so it was necessary to keep all of this stuff. So the food laws, the reason that God did this is He said, I am trying to keep you separated from the rest of the world. They were supposed to be unlike any other nation. And they were governed by whom? God. Every other nation had a king or a ruler of some sort. Now later on, they will cry out to God and say, God, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And who does He give them? Saul. And Saul screws up, which later gets us David. So they were to be separated. So what would happen is on the seventh day, they could gather no food whatsoever. They had to gather everything they needed on the sixth day, and then they had to have everything ready to go because they could, you couldn't cook. You couldn't do anything. There was, it was nowhere, It was a day hallowed, which means it is set apart and, and worship to God. Now, we do that on Sunday here, all right? That doesn't come uh, come into play until after the time of Constantine, where they moved the day of worship uh, to Sunday. There's a whole lot of stuff into that we're not going to get into, but the bottom line is this. Sunday has never been the Sabbath. I just want to make that clear. Biblically, it is always on Saturday. We don't care. You know why we don't care? Who was this given to? Israel. This was part of the Mosaic Covenant. You see, when they fled Egypt, And God's standing there and it's a Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. And you guys have seen the movie. So Charles and Heston's up there doing his thing. He gets the stone, lightning's flashing, all of that. Basically comes down from the mountain. God says, listen, I will be your God. You will be my people. Here are the things that I want you to do. If you do them, you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Life will be good for you. But if you don't, you will be cursed. Do you accept my terms? They said, yes, we do. A sacrifice was cut. Blood was shed for this. And so this goes into play. And what happened, they broke it immediately, they started worshiping the golden calf. But these Sabbaths were important, because on the seventh day, they did nothing. On the seventh year, they did not farm. So they were allowed to let, they had to let the land rest, and nothing would happen. And God says, you will be able to collect so much on the sixth year, you won't need to on the seventh, and then you start again on the eighth, and you will have more than you could even imagine if you just do this. But did they do it? No, they did not. You see, what happens is they never allowed the land to rest. And the reason King Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon and takes them captive is God says, my land needs its Sabbath. So for 490 years, they are in captivity. You guys heard that, if my people who are called my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. That's what that's talking about. You see, 490 years, they had never kept That seventh year. But the point was, it's like, you need to trust me in this. I want you to let that land rest. There's probably a natural reason for all the the nutrients to get back in it and all that other kind of stuff. And he's like, just trust me and you will be fine. But here's the thing. They didn't trust God. They would do some work on the Sabbath. They would do some things. Remember when the manna was falling and God said, listen, collect all you need on the sixth day, but don't collect anything on the seventh. And they normally couldn't have it stay because the next day it would be no good. But on that day it would. But they didn't trust God here. You see, that is the point I'm trying to make with the Sabbath. Is for a Jew, the Sabbath was all about putting your faith and trust in God's ability to meet your needs. Because everybody was into agriculture. These feasts that they had all revolve around the agricultural year. They had to trust God that if they took that year off, that God would provide what they needed. But they never did it. They never even gave him a chance because they didn't trust him at his word. Now, these were never given to us. They were given to Israel. They were part of that Mosaic Covenant. I want to make that clear. This has no bearing in our lives whatsoever. But the bottom line here is, is that the principle behind the Sabbath rest, and the Sabbath itself, the seventh day, was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. You can look that up in Exodus 30. The bottom line is that by doing this, they are putting their trust in God. Look at Colossians chapter two, verse sixteen. It says, "So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding festivals or a new moon or sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ." So what do we see here? We see Paul telling the church of Colossae that, "Listen, don't let people judge you on this, because there were Jews there and they would still keep this stuff." He said, "You can do this, not do it. it doesn't make any difference." But the bottom line is, is this wasn't the substance. This was the shadow. It was all pointing to something. We say in the apologetic world that the shadow proves the sunshine. If you see a shadow, we have a light source coming from somewhere, whether you can see the light source or not. Here, this pointed... To Christ, the substance is found in this. Also, in Romans chapter thirteen, verse eight, it says, "O no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, you notice he quoted some of the Ten Commandments, right?" Why is he quoting those? You see, if you love people, you won't murder them. You won't steal from them. You will not lie about them or lie to them if you love them. And so love is the ultimate fulfillment. But where is this fulfillment found? It was found in Christ because he is the substance of that fulfillment. Remember what Jesus said, that, greater, that no man has greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. That is why Jesus came. He showed the ultimate expression of love. Now, Tying this into the giving and what we do when we give. Let me erase this here. When we give, why do we give? It is not because we have to. I mean, we make a choice. God says that the tithe belongs to Him, right? The tithe is always His. That is His. We bring it. We don't take it. We don't give it. We bring it back to Him. But there's a willingness that has to be there. And it is an expression of our love for God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the ministering to the saints. So this is talking about uh, Paul is traveling, all right? They're going around, they're setting up churches. So the ministering to the saints, these are believers, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness. Now, watch, they're willing. "...about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority." So there's an excitement there because these people are coming to faith in Christ. "...yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared." Um, We, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation." But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you weren't sure what he was talking about here, he is talking about money. You see, these guys at a previous point in time had promised to give money to the ministry. And so in doing so, he was saying, okay, guys, you know, we're coming, we're getting ready to be there, I'm giving you a heads up so you can be aware of it, you know, because we've been bragging about, you know, the things that you guys are, doing. they are funding Paul's ministry. And so he says, get ready. But what do we see the principles here? Well, the first thing that we saw, that they were willing, right? Paul didn't say, listen, you got to do this. If you don't give me $1,000 today, this ministry is going under. That's not what Paul said. He didn't try to coerce them, but they were willing to do it. What's the other thing that we see? It was generous, right? Very generous. Whatever the amount was, remember, when we talk about God and generosity, it is not the amount. All right. Somebody who is a squillionaire can give millions of dollars away, and it's like pulling change out of your couch cushions. But somebody with very little, giving a few dollars may be sacrificial. So it's never the amount, it's the attitude of the heart. What am I willing to do? But it was generous, and where was it? It was prepared beforehand, before they get there. Because they had previously promised it. So they promised to do this. It may be as a ready, as a matter of generosity, and not as a grudging obligation. Again, we're back to their willingness to do this. You don't have to. It's like, if I'm pulling this out, and you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. We've missed the entire point. He said, I say, he who so sparingly Will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So, again, what do we see here? It is all a matter of how we sow. Are we grudgingly putting this in? We don't want to do this. Or, boy, I know I could do more, and I feel like maybe God's telling me to do more, but I'm not gonna because I wanna go do whatever I wanna go do. I want a new car. I want this. I want that. The point here is, is always that we put God first, and He meets our needs. He who sows sparingly, that's how you're gonna reap sowing and reaping, right? If you don't put corn in the ground, you're not going to get corn back out, okay? Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. So we have this not begrudgingly was because there's this willingness. We have this generous spirit with it. We're doing this because we believe in what God is doing. And we have a cheerful heart. And God loves that. Why? Because this item, this, in our case it's money, but this was agriculture, does not own us. It is nothing more than a tool. Let's look at another one, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, so this is previous to what we read, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. So we see that willing again. But according to their ability they gave, but also what? Beyond Their ability, it was sacrificial, right? It wasn't just that. Oh, you know, I I've got this, so I can afford to give this amount. I mean, they so believed in what God was doing that they gave beyond their natural ability to just give. That means it hurt a little. Now, think about this. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Do you think it maybe could have hurt a little bit to a farmer who didn't have a whole lot? But that first time that baby lamb comes out, that baby cow, whatever it was. They have to take that to the temple? Absolutely. This is your livelihood. We're dependent upon that. You think it maybe hurt to take a day off on the Sabbath and not work? You could be out there in the marketplace. You could be making some money right now. You think that maybe hurt? Yeah. But the point wasn't that he's trying to hurt you. He wanted their heart. He wants them to be lifted up and worship God in all that they have. So beyond their ability, they freely and were willing to give, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Now, I can relate to this because Paul's saying like that they're, they're, they're begging. It's like, Paul, you need to be willing to take this. And I understand that because there have been times in, in being a pastor and for, for many years is that somebody comes in and wants to give and you know their situation. And all you want to do is just give it back to them because it's like, man, you need this. But am I doing them a favor? Not at all. Because they are putting their faith in God. Remember the woman with two mites. And Jesus said, she's given more than everybody here. Everybody here was dropping in a ton of money. She gave all that she had. And she said that her gift is greater. Because it's not about the money. It's not what we're trying to bring in. She was so willing to fulfill what God had told her to do that she gave everything she had. Okay? Let's go on. So we urge Titus that as as he had it begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything in faith and in speech and in knowledge and all diligence, for in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. What's he talking about there? He's not talking about like Jesus didn't cash in his trust fund. Jesus in heaven with God, the the pinnacle of the world, everywhere that we all desire to be, he gave all of that up and came to earth and became poor, this is not talking about finances, so that we could become rich. Also not talking about finances. Jesus did not die to make you wealthy. What's this talking about? We are now complete in him. When we receive Jesus as our Lord, we make him, we become born again, whatever vernacular you want to put on it. We are now rich in the eyes of God because we are lacking nothing. Jesus had everything, came to earth, lacked what he needed on earth per se. Didn't have everything, but he became poor so that we could become rich. Verse 10, and in this I give advice, it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete to the doing of it that as there was a readiness and des- to desire it, so there also must be a completion out of what you have. What does he just say? It's advantageous that you do this. Right? Can't spell. It was to their advantage. Guys, you made a promise here. You were willing and you're generous. and this was sacrificial, But now it's time to follow through with that. It's to your advantage. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. So, when it talks about giving, it's based off of what you do have, not off of what you don't have, right? Does God ever ask you to give something you didn't have? That you didn't control? No, he never does. Never in Scripture. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and who gathered little had no lack. What's he saying? We're all in this together. Some can give more. Some can give less. But when they give more, they can make up what you, what you can't, because it's not based on what you can't do. It's based off of what you can do. You are in completely control complete control. You have to be willing to do this. And it was to their advantage, but we're all in this together. We're all in this this teamwork to to fulfill the work of Christ. And that is why we give. We give to the ministry. We give because we believe that God's telling us to give. We give out of obedience to give. We give because we're willing and we, we want to have a generous heart. And sometimes it is sacrificial. I mean, if you've ever given away a a large gift, a large sum, given away a vehicle or something like that, there are times that that is a sacrifice, but you know that God told you to do it, so you're doing it. But it's always to your advantage. You see, it's all a matter of the heart. All of this stuff. All a matter of the heart. It never has been anything else. God was never after anybody's money. He wasn't after their livestock. God does not need a baby cow to be brought to the temple. He doesn't need it, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need that. What He needs are people willing to follow Him, people willing to love Him and do what He tells them to, to obey His commandments. That was the point of that Mosaic Covenant. There were 613 laws that get split up into a whole bunch of stuff, but He said, listen, if you'll do this, you'll be blessed. All the nations of the world will look at you in wonders, like, what are they doing? They were supposed to be this beacon of light, this city on a hill that every nation that wasn't following God would look at them and say, man, they don't work on the seventh day. They take a year off every six years from farming, and yet they've got so much more than any of the nations around them. They were supposed to be, but they didn't do it because their heart wasn't with them. Remember, what was one of the signs of the covenant with uh, with the Mosaic covenant was circumcision. They would be physically circumcised. That would enter them into the covenant. But Moses said, listen, you guys need to circumcise your heart because they would be going through the motions but their heart was far from God. We see this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. It says, "...take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven." Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. We see another thing. There's a reward for being faithful to God. We saw that when we talked about when... when uh, uh, Mary poured the spikenard on Jesus' feet and anointed him with that and that was a year's wages and he says she, great is her reward she's like I'm only with you for a, a little while great is your reward every time this gospel is preached this story will be told said Mark, and it has been for years because she sacrificially gave to God and there's, there's some uh, symbolism that's going on in that you see we see here that we're rewarded for this but what was the point here It wasn't the act of giving. It was the heart of giving. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. They do all of this stuff to be seen by men. Who are the hypocrites? Well, let's look at Luke 16. Now the Pharisees. All right, so who are the Pharisees? Let's explain this. The Pharisees are the guys that gave Jesus so much trouble when he was on the earth. In the book of Acts, it becomes the Sadducees. The Pharisees were what we call the legalists. They were, they were strict teachers of the law. They believed in all that, but they believed in, in, in the supernatural, the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees later, they don't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in um, uh, uh, the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in any of that kind of stuff. All right, There were four main sects of Judaism. Those were two of them. The Pharisees at this point are in charge. The Pharisees are the ones that people would report to when they saw that Jesus had done a miracle, there were four miracles that they were waiting for the Messiah to do. They report to the Pharisees, the Pharisees would go investigate it to see, okay, is the Messiah possibly here? You see they didn't like Jesus. Cuz Jesus didn't fit the mold of the Messiah that they thought he should be. Can you imagine? And so they did everything they could to thwart his plan. Everything they could. So don't be like the Pharisees. They were the hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? It's not somebody who says one thing and does another. The actual definition of a hypocrite from the Greek, when you get back to it, it goes back to even Shakespearean language, is this one wearing a mask. You portray yourself as something else. You have this mask on, but when you pull away the mask, you are something completely different. Not somebody who, in a, a, a moment of losing their temper, says or does something stupid. That's not a hypocrite. But you portray yourself completely as something that you are not. That is a hypocrite. It's the same thing. What does it have to do with? The heart. It's always a matter of the heart. See, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. All of this stuff, what do we see? It's always going back to the heart. There are reasons that we give. There are reasons that we don't. We have to question ourselves. I just quoted this, but let me read it. John 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table. Then Mary took a pound of the very costly oil, of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped her feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, why is this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This, he said, not that he cared about the poor, but was, he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what, he, what it was put in. And Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for my day, the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Okay. What is she doing? Why is she doing this? You see, Jesus shows up, but you notice it's six days before the Passover. The Passover in which Jesus is going to die. The Passover is one of those feasts that I was talking about later. We celebrate Easter. But technically, it's Passover that we're celebrating. And so she takes this extremely, it's a year's wages. Can you imagine taking one year's salary and buying any item and dumping it on the ground? Okay? It's a bad move, just so you know. And Judas is getting on to her. He's saying, why are you doing this? You should have sold this. We could have taken that money and given it to the poor, which is not his motivation, right? He just tells us that. He was stealing. He was taking money out of the box. But that's the spirit of mammon. Oh yeah, you should give more. We see this on TV. We're going to talk about these TV preachers, okay? So don't get me wrong. We will get there. But this idea here is the spirit of Mammon, which is the spirit of Antichrist, which is like, if you will do this, then I will give you that. But what was she doing? Why did she do it? It was the sister of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It was with a thankful heart that she gave to him. She was so grateful for what Jesus had done. Remember the story that she had called for Jesus to come. The message got to Jesus before Lazarus had died. And Jesus didn't go. He waited. And he looked at his disciples he said, it is better for you that we wait than to go. Why is that? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus could have said something. would have risen right up. No big deal. Well, one of the Messianic miracles, because Jews believed that the spirit of a man stayed with the man for three days. But on the fourth day, the spirit would leave and you could no longer raise him, raise him from the dead. Only the Messiah could do that. Only God himself. And it tells us specifically that when he went, it was the fourth day. Thus proving him the Messiah. That is why the Pharisees later tried to kill Lazarus. Because he was proof of the power of God through Jesus. So why was she so thankful? Why was she doing it? Because Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. He was sitting there with them in this moment. That is what's going on here. It's this thankful heart that she's willing to give up an equivalent of a year's salary for God. That's sacrificial, isn't it? Was it to her advantage? Great is your reward. Absolutely. She was willing to do it. It was generosity. Now, let's look at this story here. This story often gets, I'm almost done, I promise. This story often gets misquoted, misunderstood. People don't understand this, and and they look at this backwards. But let me show you what's going on. In Matthew chapter 19, we have the story of this rich man that comes to Jesus. Verse 16, Behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, What good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Guys, those are questions that we get asked all the time. How do I get to heaven? And what does most people answer? Well, if you're a good person or you do good things. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus never said that. And remember, he's talking to a Jewish man. He said to them, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. What commandments? The Ten Commandments. He said to them, well, which ones? Right? Narrow that list down for me, would you? Jesus said, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What am I missing? What do I still lack? Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It means he's loaded. Did Jesus said to his disciples, surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so how does this story often get preached? Well, you've got this rich guy coming to Jesus. And what's the moral of the story? You need to sacrifice everything. You need to give it all away you can't be rich and get to heaven so we should live this pious life and nobody should ever have anything because every dollar should be going to the ministry in some capacity because it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle anybody here sew? anybody in here ever ridden a camel ever tell you a story where i almost bought a camel at an auction let me tell you a story because it's funny I used to own a landscape business where I'm at auction buying equipment. This has nothing to do with anything. I just like this story. And we're at this auction, and there was a camel on auction. Now, I don't need a camel. I don't want a camel. But what was so cool is they would fill this Mountain Dew bottle with water, and they put this, it put on the ground, and the camel would go down, and he would pick it up, and he would do this, and he would drink out of the Mountain Dew bottle. And I was amazed by that. I'm like, that is so cool. I'm like, I'm going to buy this camel. And I had a couple of my guys with me, and I'm bidding. And we're in the middle of bidding, and got, one of them leans over to He's like, where are you going to put that thing? And that's what it dawned on me. like, I have absolutely no idea. Luckily, somebody outbid me, and I don't, never owned a camel. But I was enthralled with it. It has nothing to do with anything. Again, I just like that story. But could you fit a camel through the eye of a needle? No, you can't. You see, when we preach this story today, what would we do in the American church today? What would we say to this man? We get a rich guy that comes in. Listen, I'm thinking about joining your church, and I really want to follow God. What do I need to do? If we said, oh, well, you need to give up everything. You need to give away all your money, stuff like that. And the guy's are like, well, I don't know if I really want to do that. What would we say? Well, you don't have to give it all up today. You can do it another day. Maybe, maybe in a couple of years, you know, your heart will be there, you could do it. We would chase after the guy. Did Jesus chase after the guy? No, he didn't. What is going on here? Well, look at Jeremiah chapter 17. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. You see, Jesus is testing this man here. Now, let's go back. You'll notice that he quotes some of the Ten Commandments. You should not murder, you should not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you should love neighbors yourself, all of that. Did you notice which one's missing? You shall not covet. Why didn't Jesus quote that one? Because if he'd quoted that one, the man would have realized, I'm not keeping that commandment. What is covetousness? The desire of having something that is not yours. This over, not, not just like, oh, you know, ladies, I want a new pair of shoes or, you know, whatever. Not like that. But it's like, I'm willing to do anything to get or keep what I have. I want something that does not belong to me more than anything else. This man was so sad when he'd heard this that he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. He was willing to follow Jesus as long as it cost him nothing. So what is this eye of the needle? This is a free tidbit. Let me show you a picture of the eye of the needle. Here you go. That's an eye of the needle. That's in the uh, temple. See, what would happen is they had all these gates around the temple. And they would travel in and out. But at night, they would close those doors. And if you were a merchant or somebody that was traveling by night, you typically traveled by camel there, and they would have all these packs on them. And the only way in and out was through something like that. Armies could not come in through that way. You had to come in through the gate. So your options were to sleep outside the gate, which was dangerous, because you were protected inside the wall. You were not protected outside the wall. The only way, and that is small, that is if somebody were to walk through that, they'd have to hunch down, is you'd have to unpack and unload the camel and all the stuff and try to get him to squeeze through that. It was possible, it was not easy. Now think about what Jesus is saying here. You need to get rid of all the stuff that is keeping you from following God and in your case, it's all the stuff. That's not true of everybody, but that was true of him. And then you must enter in through the gate of which I tell you. That's what's going on here, okay? So it is not a camel through a sewing needle. I just want you to make that clear. But that man was not willing, was he? wasn't willing to give up anything. You see, the whole point of all of this is, when it comes to giving, is the tithe belonged to God. He never says give your tithe, he says bring your tithe. Because it was his. You are a steward of it. Everything else after that is yours to do with what you want. And you can choose to be generous and sacrifice or any of this other stuff, or you can choose not to be, and this is your choice, it doesn't matter. But we watch all of this stuff play out in first chronicles chapter 29 this is an example of a cheerful heart an example of a generous heart an example of a giving heart somebody who loves god and believes in what god's wanting to do you see david is ready to to build the temple he's wanting to make this happen he's not going to be allowed to do it They said he was a man of war his son solomon is going to build the temple but david's going to fund it but not just david everybody else there the temple was lavish. I don't have pictures of it, but everything was wrapped in gold and there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. It was extremely expensive, billions of dollars, billions, okay? First Chronicles 29, starting in verse 1, it says, Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The work is great because the temple is not for man but for the Lord God. Remember, the temple at that point was going to be where God, it was God's house, there was three parts. You had the outer court, you had the inner court, the holy place, and then the most holy place inside that was covered with a veil that only the high priest one time a year could go through on the Day of Atonement. Inside of that was the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. There were two cherubim that were there, but that was the throne of God. The presence of God resided in there. When they, uh, when they sanctified the temple and they, what they call Hanukkah it, when they, they set it apart, they, um, the, the glory of God was so strong in the temple that the priests couldn't even walk in. They would fall down as they attempted to walk in. So this is where God resided. Who's the temple of, of, the, of God today? All of us, right? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not for man, but for the Lord. Now, for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might. So he's worked for this. Gold for things made of gold, silver for things silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones uh, to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of, of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house my own special treasure of gold and silver, three thousand talents of gold and the gold of the ophir, seven thousand talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the house. The gold for things of gold and the silver Silver for things of silver and for all kinds of work to be done in the hands of craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? So what is David saying? Listen, guys, I've sacrificed for this. I have set apart all of this stuff. I worked to get everything that I needed, but I believe in what God's going to do. David is not going to get to enjoy this temple. Because Solomon's the one that's going to build it. David's gone. He's doing this for for later on, but he believed in what God said that he needed to do. So he's setting all of this apart. So he said, who is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? What's it talking about? Who's willing to join me in this? So he said, then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and hundreds, and with officers over the king's work, offered willingly... They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 dairies of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord at the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. He was the uh, accountant, if you will. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced graciously. You guys picking up on a theme? Did God say you must do this, you must give all? Not once was there a command of God for them to provide this. They willingly did this. And David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. Where do those two items come from? From God. Didn't God tell the Israelites that if you will obey my commandments and worship me and me alone, you will be blessed? Where do you think all of this came from? They recognized it. It wasn't theirs, it belonged to God. You reign over all, and your hand is power and might. It is your hand. In your hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you. They're thankful. And praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. What's he talking about there? He's also talking about the tithe because what belonged to God? It was his. It was God's. We bring it. Who am I and who are my people that we should so willingly be able to offer? The ability was there because of God. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is is from your hands and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy... I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. You've got to be joyful. With a joyful heart I give. I mean, it, it all comes together. O oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. Give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes. To do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. That means they laid themselves out in worship to God. It was never about the money. It was with a joyful heart that they willingly gave to what God had told them to do. And most of them would never enjoy the fruits of what they gave. Many of these people would die before Solomon would get the temple built because it took a while. And it was lavish and it took a sacrifice and these people were willing to do it. You see, these things here are all what will lead to a heart sold out to God. When what you have belongs to God, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Remember what I said. It goes true for God. Where his treasure was, you and I, he gave. He was that offering, that sacrificial lamb on our behalf because we were his treasure. When your treasure is people, you will give your time, you will give your resources, you will give your finances to see them come to the kingdom, to grow in that. When you see somebody's hurting and you love people because God first loved you, even when you were sinners, you will meet all the needs that you are capable of. You see, this isn't about how much... You give. It is a matter of the heart. We'll get into the specifics on how we give and what we give and stuff here in the coming weeks. The bottom line is this, guys. Is if our heart doesn't match this, then we need to question our motives. We need to ask ourselves, are we truly giving generously? Are we giving with a sacrificial heart and a thankful heart and a joyful heart, knowing that God meets our needs according to His riches and glory. If you put your faith and hope and trust in the things of this world, they will fail you. But if you put your faith, hope, and trust in God, God cannot fail because failure is not a part of His character. His promises are true. It is God and God alone that we put all of this in. One more thing. When we give our heart to the Lord, and we'll call that born again, we go through these same things. We have to be willing, but God was generous. And he was the one who sacrificed, but it's to our advantage. It's the same thing. We're rewarded because of, our, of the work that Jesus did and what he did. And it's with thankfulness that we give and a joyful heart we come before the Lord. This is what we do, guys. This is why we give. It's we trust God in him and him alone, knowing that he meets our needs. It's never about money. It's always about the heart.